0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. We'll also be reading from Hebrews chapter 7. So, Hebrews chapter 7. So, if you want to also turn to Hebrews chapter 7 and keep your finger in that passage as well. So, this morning we're going to consider Psalm 110 as well as Hebrews chapter 7 as the author to the Hebrews in, in Hebrews chapter 7 is explaining, expositing certain portions of Psalm 110 for us. Well, please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Now, if you'd please turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him and said to him, And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the, in, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. With well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's imagine that you are an apostle and you are preaching to a group of Jews in the first century who do not yet embrace Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. What Old Testament passage would you seek to exposit? What book of the Bible would you go to? What chapter would you Would you explain? Well, Psalm 110 is the answer, the predominant answer that you would have received from the apostles. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The apostles looked to Psalm 110 to establish Jesus' eternal uh, identity as the Son of God. The apostles looked to Psalm 110 to establish Jesus' kingship and priesthood. The apostles firmly believed that the early church needed to rightly understand Psalm 110. Now, you may be able to recognize that Psalm 110 was an important psalm for the early church, but you may wonder well, do we need Psalm 110 as much as the early church needed? Psalm 110? Well, the book of Hebrews, of which we read a portion, is a, a, a book that is touching upon a lot of these themes. Jesus' identity, Jesus' kingship and priesthood. In fact, Hebrews chapter 7 could be thought of as an exposition of Psalm 110. Hebrews is not an ordinary epistle, but rather it's a written sermon. And in Hebrews chapter 7 the author is giving a sermon on Psalm 110. Now, what issue was the original audience of Hebrews dealing with? Well, one author puts it this way. He says that that original audience was characterized as being a people who were pilgrims in regress rather than pilgrims in progress. They were a people who had left the faith tradition of their, of their youth, Judaism, and they were now a marginalized sect in the midst of a, a, a broad and quite big pagan Roman world. And they were wondering to themselves, is Christ worth it? Is he worth the many sacrifices that we have, we, we have had to make to, to be a Christian? And we may feel, oftentimes, the same way this original audience of Hebrews felt. We may grow discouraged as we think about what's going on in the broader world, in the broader church, maybe even within the confines of our own life, as we think of our own individual church plant. We're small, growth is slow. We may begin to lose, suddenly lose confidence that our ascended king and priest does have all authority in heaven and earth we may begin to lose confidence in the mission of our ascended king and priest, a mission that does not include the establishment of of hospitals or schools or or Christian governments or nation states, but rather a mission that essentially is the proclamation of the word, the administration of the sacraments and faithful discipline or discipleship. And so we, as well as the early church, need Psalm 110, 110 to give us confidence in who our king and priest is and what his mission truly is in this age. We'll notice that the title of Psalm 1010 tells us that this is a psalm of David. And in this psalm, David recounts two oracles. Two oracles that he hears or comes to know between God the Father and God the Son. We see the first oracle in verse 1. We see the second oracle in verse 4. And these two oracles establish both the kingship and the priesthood of Christ. And so this morning, we are going to look at at both of those oracles. The oracle in verse 1, the oracle in verse 4, and consequently then uh, consider the kingship and the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 1, verse 1, literally says, an oracle of Yahweh to my Adonai. An oracle of Yahweh to my Adonai. So whenever you come across LORD in all caps, that's a reference to God's covenant name, Yahweh. And Yahweh is speaking to Adonai. It's another name of God that refers to his kingship, that refers to God as ruler. And so Yahweh is speaking to David's Lord, David's king, David's Adonai. This is David here is let into a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And notice what Yahweh, God the Father is saying to Adonai. He says, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." What's going on here is David is is getting a glimpse into a royal coronation ceremony. The uh, the other week, King Charles was was coronated with much pomp and circumstance. This This is the image we ought to have in mind. It's a royal coronation ceremony where Adonai, God the Son, is being coronated, crowned as king of heaven and earth. This... Doctrine is sometimes referred to as Christ's session. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. The act of sitting is a symbol for ruling. When uh, when a judge sits, uh, the the courtroom proceeds with uh, their activities. We see in Presbyterian churches, the elders are referred to as the session. What that is denoting is that those elders are seated as the rulers of the church. And so Christ is being seated here as ruler and king over all things. And Yahweh says as king, he promises to make the son's enemies his footstool. Now boys and girls in ancient times, uh, uh, kings, after they would defeat their foe, they would put their foot on the neck of their defeated enemy. And thus this became a metaphor for a king's victory and power and control. So we see here this promise that the son's enemies will become a footstool to him. He will have power and dominion and control over all things. Now, this language of verse one may have been used in Israel's coronation uh, ceremonies when a new king was put upon the throne in Judah. However, when we, turn, uh, when we move past, uh, fast forward to Acts chapter two, which is Peter's Pentecost sermon, the first sermon in the new covenant by an apostle, Peter looks to Psalm 110 and says, when David was writing Psalm 110, he was functioning as a prophet because he was speaking about Christ. And Peter tells us that verse 1 is ultimately fulfilled after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, hasn't God the Son always been ruler and king of the universe and creation and providence? Well, yes, that's true. However, Verse 1 is specifically speaking to that moment after Jesus' resurrection, ascension, when he was seated at the right hand of God as the God-man. At that moment, that was the first time that Christ was seated as king, as the God-man. And that's what Peter tells us verse 1 is ultimately referring to. As so you'll notice in verse 2, we see this promise that all of Adonai's enemies will acknowledge one day his reign and his rule. In verse 3, we see that this king has uh, many, many troops prepared for battle. So many troops that they're compared to the dew on the grass in the morning. This is reminiscent of what we confess in our Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism, that on In the the age to come, in the new creation, we will reign with Christ over all things. And so we see here that Christ is king. We also see in verse 4, the second oracle that David recounts. And here we read that the Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Adonai, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now here, David speaks of Melchizedek, who is a very strange and somewhat obscure figure in the Old Testament. He only has about four verses of airtime in the entire Old Testament. Besides here in Psalm 1010, he's only referred to in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. In Genesis chapter 14, we read about these kings in the ancient Near East who who are at war with one another. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah lose. And Lot, who is living in, in, in Sodom, he is taken captive by one of the opposing kings. And Abram hears about this. Lot is his nephew, and so he takes 318 able men, and he goes to battle against these opposing kings. And he is able to take back the possessions that were plundered and take back uh, Lot who was captured. And so we read this beginning in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, that after Abram's return from the defeat of Shadolomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. It's a very interesting little narrative there in Genesis chapter 14. Now, Hebrews 7, which we read a portion of earlier, is essentially a commentary on Psalm 110 and Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. As I mentioned before, Hebrews is a written sermon. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7 is seeking to exposit Psalm 110 and Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. Now in Psalm 110, we read that Yahweh has made Christ a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which implies that Jesus is not a priest after the order of Aaron and the Levites. Now, what's so significant about Melchizedek? Well, Hebrews 7 points out a few points of significant uh, significance for us. You'll notice in Hebrews chapter 7, he, the author first speaks about the name Melchizedek. Now in Hebrew, Melchi or Moloch means king. And Zedek means righteousness. So by translation of his name, he is king of righteousness. But we also learn that he's king of, of Salem. Now Salem likely is ancient Jerusalem. Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem. But Salem means peace. So Melchizedek is king of righteousness and king of peace. peace. However, Moses tells us in addition that Melchizedek is also priest of God Most High. So Melchizedek is both a king and a priest in one person. That is notable. Because when you fast forward in redemptive history to the Mosaic Covenant, you see that within that theocratic um, state, a king and a priest cannot be one person. They're separate lines, separate lineages. One comes from the tribe of Judah, one comes from the tribe of Levi. In fact, King Uzziah tries to become a priest by offering incense in the temple, and he is struck with leprosy. And therefore, king and priest are separate offices that require separate persons to be in. Those offices. However, Melchizedek is able to hold the office of kingship and priesthood in his same person. Well, in this way, he resembles Christ, who also is both king and priest in the same person. We see in in verse 3 of Hebrews 7 that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now in Genesis 14, Melchizedek just sort of pops in and out of the narrative. We're not given any background information on him, who his mother or father is, uh, what his lineage consists of. He just pops in and out. Now, this isn't necessarily to say that Melchizedek was literally an eternal figure or that he was an angelic being, or a, pre, or a pre-manifestation of the incarnate Christ. It may just be that in a literary sense, he is presented as an eternal figure, and thus in this literary sense, he is a type of Christ. Now this is, this is again striking and notable for two, two specific reasons. First, the book of Genesis cares a lot about lineage. In fact, the whole book is structured around um, various lineages. And so when you have a figure, an important figure, who pops into the the narrative of Genesis and there is no lineage that's described, you should make note of that, that's significant. And furthermore, when you read about the Levitical priesthood that was established during the Mosaic Covenant, that was a priesthood in which one's lineage was very important. You cannot become a priest in Israel if you didn't have the right family line. If you did not descend from Aaron, and if you are not a, a tri- from the tribe of Levi, you cannot become a priest. Melchizedek, however, is a priest apart from his lineage, and in this way he resembles Christ. We see that Christ did not come from the tribe of Levi. He did not descend from Aaron. He came from the tribe of Judah, and therefore He was made a priest not by his lineage, but by a divine oath. That's why we read in verse 4 that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ was made priest not by earthly descent, but by God's divine appointment. And as a consequence, he continues in that office perpetually. The Leviticus, Levitical priests were many in number because they were constantly dying off. However, Christ retains this office perpetually. Now, this language of an oath, of the Lord's swearing, is is very important language. This is a reference to what's sometimes referred to as the covenant of redemption, or the pactum salutis, this, this pact, this covenant, this agreement that God the Father and God the Son made before the foundations of the earth in eternity past, It's this agreement, this covenant that stands behind all of the actual historical covenants that you read about in Scripture with Abraham, David, Moses, and the new covenant. And in this eternal pact, God the Father appointed Christ as priest. Christ agreed to become a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And God the Father promised to give a people to the Son. And we see then this covenant of redemption worked out in history. Uh, from Genesis chapter 3 to the end of Revelation. And so when we as a Reformed church speak about election or predestination, we don't speak about that doctrine as a naked or bare doctrine, but rather it's clothed in the garments of covenants. When we speak about election, we're really speaking about the outworking of the covenant of redemption. Verse 4, where God the Father Yahweh has sworn to the Son to make him a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And last of all, we see in Hebrews chapter 7 that Melchizedek blessed Abram and Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 says that this signifies that Melchizedek is greater and superior than Abraham. (laughs) Melchizedek is superior to Abraham and not only that, but because Levi descended from Abraham then Melchizedek is superior to all of the Levitical priests. Consequently, then, because Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus is both superior to Abraham and Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. So Jesus, then, is a priest. A priest not like Aaron, a priest not like the Levitical priests, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you'll see in In both of these oracles, God promises that our ascended and seated priest and king will conquer his and our enemies. We see pretty striking and violent language here in this psalm about how Christ's enemies will become his footstool. However, in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8, the author alluding to Christ's session says that we do not yet see all things in in subjection to Christ, which seems to imply that in this age there are enemies that are not fully put asunder yet. So we have to ask ourselves, which enemies will be put fully under Jesus' feet in this age and which enemies will be put under Jesus' feet in the age to come? Well, we know that Jesus has in his first coming conquered death and the devil and our own sin. And so every time a sinner is converted, Christ's conquest continues. Christ's conquest in this age is not, uh, is not waged through the physical sword, but rather through the ministry of, of the word and the sacraments. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, though we walk according to the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. He says that the weapons of our warfare are not according to the flesh, but have divine power to tear down strongholds. What are those weapons that have divine power that are not according to the flesh, according to Paul? The word, the gospel. And thus Christ conquers his enemies in this age through the power of his word. As one author puts it, wherever the gospel is taken, A peace of heaven, the age to come, begins even now to dawn in the dusty corners of this passing evil age. Christ's mission in this age for his kingdom, for his church, is to proclaim the word. And it's through that word that Christ conquers the rebellious hearts of sinners. However, in the second coming, we know That Christ will fully and finally put all enemies under his feet. Christ will come in judgment on his mighty war steed. And so when we read in verses 5 and 6 that Christ will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. We are not in the day of his wrath. That's future oriented. The day of his wrath is his second coming. That's when he will shatter kings. In this age, Christ does not wage our political and national battles. Some have looked to Psalm 110 as a a proof text for the establishment of a theocratic state. But Christ promises to shatter kings on the day of his wrath, not in this age. In this age, he wages his battle through the ministry of his word and sacraments. Now, one final reflection I'd like to make as we we wrap up is as you consider Psalm 110 and as you consider how the apostles, how the authors of the Hebrews applies, explains this psalm, you quickly realize that the apostles go deep into the riches of this psalm. It's one of the reasons why Hebrews can be so difficult to understand. And this then seems to suggest that we as Christians are called to think hard about Scripture. We also are called to go deep into the riches of the Word of God. Peter says this very thing as he calls all Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Part of our sanctification is a growth in knowledge of who Christ is for us as prophet, priest, and king. And as we grow in our knowledge, our trust in him should also grow in tandem. In our catechism service, we, we talk every week about the three elements of true faith, knowledge, assent, and trust. And so as our knowledge of Christ grows, well, our trust in him should also grow, that he is my king, that he is my priest. Of course, there is a temptation to over-intellectualize the Christian faith, but an even greater temptation in the broader church today is to devalue doctrine, devalue uh, preaching and teaching the full counsel of God. And so one, Psalm 110 shows us and teaches us that we as Christians are called to grow up into the meat of the Christian faith. So congregation of Christ, be encouraged that you have a seated and ascended king and priest who is exercising his mission through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.